0: Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. The Creek Chief Cow Tom was born around 1810 along the west coast of Florida. He survived the Trail of Tears, served as an interpreter between the Creeks and the U.S. government, and earned the title of Miko or Chief, for his leadership of Creek refugees during the Civil War. In 1866, he served as an advisor during the nation's treaty negotiations with the U.S. government. This treaty, in addition to banning slavery in the five First Nations who were party to it, also granted full citizenship in the Creek Nation to Black Creeks who had been accepted into the community after marriage or who had been previously enslaved by their Indian owners. Miko Tom was one of those Black Creeks. When he died in 1874, he bequeathed his considerable assets, including gristmills, cattle, and land, to his family, along with Creek citizenship and a degree of social prominence that was exceedingly rare for a Black family of the time. But in 1979, the Creek Nation expelled its Black members and to this day refuses to recognize their citizenship. In his new book, We Refuse to Forget, Journalist and Northeastern University professor Caleb Gale tells the complex story of the Creek Nation's ongoing reckoning with its identity. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Caleb.
1: Stephanie, thank you. What a wonderful introduction.
0: Well, what interested you about this story, which was completely new to me and absolutely surprising?
1: Sure. Uh, I think before I knew that this story was the story, I kind of opened the book talking about interacting with kids who looked just like me. But who had a different story to tell about their ancestry. They would say, I, I got Indian in me. And that, that, those phrases that complicated what I knew to be Blackness in America haunted me, um, until such a time as some of Cow Tom's descendants were found on TulsaWorld.com back in 2018 suing the Creek Nation for re-inclusion in a nation that they once considered their political homeland. So to me, it felt as if everything came full circle decades later um, after hearing these kids make what I thought at that time uh, to be myth or fantasy, um, but in actuality happened to be very powerful history, very personal history. And so to some extent, I felt always growing up in a place like Oklahoma, not knowing about the Black history that shaped the creation of Oklahoma, right? Not knowing all the indigenous history that shaped Oklahoma, I felt robbed of my humanity and thereby also the humanity of all the people who came before me. So I almost just, I I want to appreciate the fullness of everyone's humanity. And that doesn't necessarily include putting people into little boxes because we always leave behind portions of their humanity when we do that.
0: Well, let's talk about a little bit of that history because I think it it really gets at how you can be fully two things or three things or however many things. So basic facts here. Who were the Creek? How did they relate to other Indian tribes? You know, colonial powers, the United States before the United States and then the United States when it became the United States.
1: Yeah, long before colonists found uh, by fiat uh, this country, right? Um, it had been the, in the possession communally of several different peoples, several different tribes. So when we think about places like the Muskogee Creek Nation, we have to kind of think about it as a sovereign nation because that's what it is. It's what it always has been. And it's oftentimes been a federation of much smaller tribes that could be found as, as far as the Carolinas to, parts of Georgia, if not a good chunk of Georgia, and parts of Florida. Um, and members of those tribes that then became confederated within the Creek Nation um, had many ways to become or to become considered Creek. Um, and so long before uh, we were calling Black people three-fifths of a human, uh, they had been fully whole. Oftentimes, one of the histories written by Angie DeBoe, kind of one of the the greatest of all time on this topic, you know, refers to back in the 1530s, Black people interacting with the Kusa, one of the tribes that was federated into the Creek Nation, um, and accepting them, oftentimes um, in rejection of the very sort of slavery practices that people like DeSoto would conduct.
0: Well, I think it's difficult to imagine the Creeks could both practice slavery and then adopt formerly enslaved members into the nation wholesale, you know, without mm. any of the associations that we have today with like chattel slavery. Sure. How does that work? Yeah.
1: I mean, you have to understand that their practices of slavery didn't emerge strictly with white dudes showing up on shores and claiming it as theirs. Right. And then saying to themselves, how can we dehumanize enough people to then use them as means of production um, uh, that we don't have to pay for, right? So, I mean, there are variations of slavery, which while we can all consider slavery a bad thing, it's important to appreciate the nuance, right? So there are versions of kinship slavery, which we can find even in West African countries long ago. You know, yes, they might work the land, but they really didn't consider themselves non-human and nor did the Creek Nation. In fact, they had the wholeness of their humanity and could still break bread after working in the land all day. And so to some great extent, the decision of others to dehumanize didn't stain you and your family forever within the Creek Nation, as you were alluding to, right? Oftentimes, it just meant that that was the marker that other people had on you. But within the Creek Nation, if you were adopted into the nation, if you had kids, if you married someone, you lost the vestiges of slavery. You stopped being, right, less than. And I think to some great extent, it's hard to imagine in part because oftentimes, We allow ourselves to remember these sovereign nations as not sovereign nations, but as just, I put that in big air quotes uh, for your listeners, just as another race of people when what we're talking about is so much more complex and robust than race. We're talking about sovereignty um, within this country that was so heavily colonized. So. To some great extent, right, it wasn't even the wishes or interest of the Creek Nation to accept slavery in its chattel form, but oftentimes it was introduced uh, to them by external actors who really, really wanted to increase the productivity and efficiency in their eyes of of this nation, this sprawling nation that was growing and teeming with growth, especially as the United States gained its foothold within the country. That oftentimes it wasn't taken wholeheartedly with joy, one. And then two, when it was practiced, it it was practiced in a variety of different ways. And then also that it really wasn't necessarily the interests of people who saw the world a bit more communally and not individualistically, who didn't approach economic governance as some sort of Uh, you know, a dog-eat-dog, Darwinistic, capitalist game, and rather as a way of sustaining one another, in that model of communal living, slavery just doesn't have as much of a place or use.
0: Right. I mean, I think in U.S. history, it's pretty difficult to extract the idea of slavery from the idea of race. But Mm -hmm. it, it almost seems possible in the Creek Nation. It almost seems that, like, before being... Civilized, also big scare quotes yeah. by the United States. The, the Creek didn't really have a concept of race as we think of race. Is that fair?
1: I think that's incredibly fair, right? Like, I wouldn't just limit it to the Creek. Many other peoples, even outside of the conscious of the United States, didn't necessarily think of race in the way that white men who colonized this country did. I think oftentimes race was just a way of otherizing, it wasn't a way of extending the notions of identity in a beautiful way. It was a way of actually kind of providing certain levels of dilution and distance versus proximity to power. It's often also been a way of explaining away pathologies that don't really actually explain the behavior of anybody, but rather to purport an idea about people that they didn't ask you to purport in the first place, right? And so that's that's the difference, really, when it comes to notions of race, especially outside of the Creek Nation.
0: So when did that change? Because I, given how things are today, it seems quite obvious that the Creek of today and, and a lot of other Indian nations of today do have a conception of race.
1: Sure. So I think, you know, when we think about the divisions with racial divisions within Let's just take the Muscogee Creek Nation. Those weren't ones that were spun up by members of the Creek Nation. Oftentimes, right, it was done by external actors, one very one in particular, right, Henry Dawes, um, who decided, right, in a conference called Lake Mohawk Conference, where he was talking to a bunch of other wealthy white elites in the late 1800s about what shall we do next now that we've solved slavery, right? Um, People like Henry Dawes didn't perceive these nations for what they were, sovereign nations, right? They perceived them as backward, wayward racial groups, right? And that's important, right? That's that's critical because one of the things that he recommended was that we try to assimilate, as he calls them, these Indians, um, such that there's almost no distinction between the two anymore. There's no need for reservations, as he would put it. The The way that race went from constructed to real and quite effectual of a difference maker was that Henry Dawes he was interested, like the United States government, in reducing the geographic, political, and cultural footprint of those who were here first. The ways in which he did that was by assigning to people Creekness in the eyes of the U.S. government and doing so on the basis of things like blood quantum, right? Like being able to determine just what percentage Creek are you versus what percentage anything else are you, and blackness all of a sudden became a dilutive measure in the eyes of the U.S. government to how, quote unquote, Creek or Cherokee or something else that people might be because they would place you on a different portion of the citizenship role called the Creek Freedman role. That's a way in which the fiction, if you will, of the otherness or otherizing power of race Really took hold in an institutional way. That's just one example. There are many others, but one that I think is incredibly powerful. External actors really were interested in reducing the footprint and did so by 90 million acres from these five nations. 90 million acres. That was the real get here. That's what that was the benefit was in assigning degrees of Creek identity to people, fictionally generating a scarcity of identity and robbing many people in their eyes, specifically a lot of times Black people, from them.
0: I mean, it's really interesting that, you know, speaking of the complexity of, like, these ideas and these relationships, even within the Creek Nation, you had Upper and Lower Creeks who had radically different relations with Black people and their own Black Creek citizens. In fact, the Lower Creeks didn't have Black Creek citizens, right? So, (laughs) Correct, yeah. So even before... Dawes in 1906. How did these outside actors, um, usually agents of the US government, sort of try to sell members of the Creek Nation on the idea that like, actually, this is good for you? Yeah, Yeah, I
1: mean, I think, you know, by by using the word agents, you know, it's a a beautiful segue to talk about someone that I, I loathe, even posthumously, right? Benjamin Hawkins, who was the Indian agent um that was appointed to serve not just Washington, but the first four presidents of the United States who had a particular bone to pick. And essentially it was to introduce them to, in massive scare quotes for your listeners who can't see us talking, um, civilization. The notion that those who were here first were of a savage vintage and that in actuality they needed to be introduced to efficient modes of production, that they're hunting and their farming and their planting, gathering, and etc. experiences and customs were not akin to what was needed for this nation to grow, right? And so they dispatched people like Benjamin Hawkins to introduce it to them, right? It almost presented a false choice, right? Either you can push against us and be put down immediately, or you can slowly participate in in what seemed like the inevitable path that Angie Deboe talked about in her famous book, putting them onto the road to disappearance, right? Like that's how oftentimes it was introduced. How do we whiten up these people? How do we make them like us? How do we assimilate them almost entirely to our way of life that in many cases was in diametric opposition to their way of life, a life that long preceded this republic?
0: For that reason, it's pretty astonishing that, 1866 rolls around, and that treaty after the Civil War s- explicitly states that the Black Creek are to be given full citizenship and and even ban slavery. How did that happen? Given the long standing effort to civilize to whiten, it seems like it undermines that effort directly.
1: You know, we have to remember kind of context that you know the Union won, the South lost. I'm I am oversimplifying for sure, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, th- they're, even saying it in the way that I did is incredibly loaded. Um, the reality is, is that all of the nations that participated in some form or fashion, even if by a little with the, with the Confederacy were due to, in the eyes of the Union government, kind of received some punishment as a result, right? And part of that punishment meant, you know, we're kind of, we're going to disregard many of the treaties, right? Um, that you all had before. And so now you need to come to the table and engage in a new peace treaty with us. And as you mentioned earlier, some of the lower creeks participated and aligned themselves with Confederate interests. The upper creeks did not, so on and so forth. Again, another oversimplification. But it was required that, These nations, a year after what we now celebrate as Juneteenth, emancipate their slaves. But then there was a particularly interesting carve out that was different, which was the provision of citizenship rights. Something that Cal Tom, who was a black citizen of the Creek Nation and a leader in the Creek Nation, um, Harry Island, who at that point was kind of the chief interpreter on behalf of the Creek Nation with the U.S. government in these negotiations, also fought for the provision to ensure that All those black folks who had gained emancipation, right, had also every right to engage as citizens in that soil. That's one of the words that they use in that soil. And there were other people like James Harlan, who at that time was the interior secretary, who really fought for that, who had a history of advocating for Negro suffrage, even in op-eds for The New York Times appearing quite more bold than many of our political leaders even today. And so there were a host of people who played a role. But these three people really played a very important role, an outsized role in ensuring the inclusion of Black people in their not just emancipation, but their participation as citizens.
0: And that was something that had already been true, like how Tom was accepted as fully Black Creek Even before that, it was just sort of like writing it down, putting it in a language that the white men would understand.
1: Exactly. Definitely.
0: I mean, I think this is a super interesting inflection point in the story because I think at this time, like... I can't put myself in the shoes of a Creek person or an Indian person at that time. But it would seem to me that in like 1906, these census rules, you have to go and, you know, recertify that you belong to this nation over again. It would seem pretty transparent at that time that like something's up. This is not really in service of us. But, you know, fast forward to the 70s and suddenly, you know, like over the course of the 20th century, you see increasing numbers of First Nations using blood quantum, which is basically like what percentage of Indian blood you have, Mm -hmm. to determine membership. Can you expand on what changes materially for these nations in that time span? That something that was initially seen as, as poisonous and not even the way that you would define membership in this community or this nation, how does that turn into something that is not exactly embraced or not always embraced but certainly used by a lot of first nations.
1: Sure. I mean, look, I think when the US government essentially says, look, this is how you're going to receive your per capita allotments, your settlement, the the finances, the distribution of finances or capital that were gained from, you know, forced sales of land or this is how you have to apportion um the distribution of services right like you might hate a lot of different things about it i hate a lot of things about the ways in which we think about the distribution of social services in the united states i hate the fact that you know whatever i mean this is very different i don't want to compare it but i just want to say like i hate for instance how You know, it's rumored that the Biden administration might be means testing folks who might get the relief of student loans. But like, what are you going to do? Right. Like what what exactly are you going to do? I'm sure that those who were dealing with Benjamin Hawkins telling them, hey, actually, I know, you know how to ecologically preserve this land and treat this land to feed yourselves, to enjoy your own version of prosperity, but we're gonna do it differently. I know you enjoy hunting, but that's not the way in which we're gonna operate. I'm sure folks were like, no, I I don't appreciate that. There were people throughout the 1900s, especially when the Dawes Commission was doing what they were doing, tabulating who was going to be Creek and who wasn't, that tried to opt out of the process, but like, what are you going to do? While it might be incredibly detestable, while it might be something of a fiction, right? The ways in which we're saying you are this percentage X or not, right? What exactly are we going to do about that? And I think that there are a lot of ways in which we can interpret why it is that um, various leaders repurposed its use to in some cases exclude people, but the, the, the stage was set, the game was set for them by white colonial officials who saw Black people and decided, you know what, many of you are going to be freedmen, not full blood. The United States government created the problem and then put folks in a position to then choose a more zero-sum approach to to this life politically, culturally. The history of this country is really power-checking those who've lived on the margins, and then forgetting most of their history in service of this beautiful hockey stick graph of progress brought to you by white dudes.
0: It's not just about power checking, but it's about pitting people against each other. Definitely. We see it today in all kinds of forms. It's just a tactic of people in power. But it's interesting in, in the Creek Nation in particular, because kind of until the 70s, they... They made their peace with it. They had more or less accepted black freedmen. And then things change with the Creek Constitution, which brings us now to, you know, the 2018 case you spoke of at the beginning of black freedmen suing to be reincorporated as full black Creek citizens, not just Creek freedmen. Mm -hmm. What are their claims? And, you know, like what changed in the Creek Constitution? Yeah.
1: So, you know. Clark Cox, who was then chief of the nation, who served for like almost two decades and introduced a variety of reforms that look on the face of it and quite frankly, even in the substance, were were hella dope for a lot of people and provided greater levels of resource and opportunity for a lot of people, from health to social services, education services, just straight up money in the coffers. But in so doing, right... One of the things that he alludes to in a meeting that he has in 1977 before the changing of the Constitution in October 1979, he essentially winnowed who would be considered, those who were full blood, by blood, right? These are the folks who need to stay in control. And in so doing, they changed the citizenship parameters such that if you did, if your ancestors landed like how Tom's descendants landed on the Creek Friedman roll. Right, They cease to be able to claim their Creek identity. So fast forward to 2018, um, DeMario Solomon Simmons, who is the four-time great-grandson of Tom, suing now to get back in, right, back in 2018, the claim is the treaty is still good law. And he's doing that in reference to the Cherokee Nation, which lost to Cherokee freedmen under the leadership of Marilyn Van. Um, who's now on one of the most, you know, one of the largest kind of councils within the, the Cherokee nation, right? He's doing it in reference to the Seminole nation, who now accepts pathways for its freedmen to count themselves citizens. But he's also claiming that, look, we we are at risk of losing a history. These stories that are carried down through oral history traditions and through, you know, sparse written documents, is at risk of being lost. And perhaps if they can get their reinstatement into the Muscogee Creek Nation as their political homeland, hopefully then there can be some reclamation.
0: The unfortunate footnote to that is that he did lose the case. Mm -hmm. Although, as you said, some other parties to that treaty have since been pressured, shall we Mm -hmm. say, to change that. Do you think anything has changed for the future of Black Creek Freedmen, you know, in the wake of the uprisings of 2020, say, Hmm. or in the wake of the pandemic or Hmm. the wake of new discussions about, you know, identity in America?
1: Sure. I mean, the pandemic led to questions of Freedmen being able to take advantage of how to be honest, how well-run and well-distributed the vaccine programs were in many of these nations, right? To be honest, how much better <laughs> it worked than the United States government's rollout, right? Perhaps maybe the uprisings did it, but I think that this story kind of predates it. And there have been mm-hmm. persistent questions, whether it was Representative Danny Davis wanting, from Illinois wanting to withhold the provision of federal funding for certain programs if if Creek Friedman were continually left out of the nation. So I think that there are a variety of ways that predate the uprisings of 2020 that oftentimes go ignored. The reality is, is that I think it's hard to even convince yourself that this history happened, right? It's just so far afield, even for someone like me who grew up in Oklahoma, right? Who you would presume, or you would assume that I had better access to this history, did not, right? abjectly did not have <laughs> access to this content. So I think that there is great work to be done and great work that has been done by a litany of historians that I mentioned earlier who who have laid the foreground. And I'm just happy to be part of helping to mainstream a lot of that academic work that's been so critical to helping to reestablish our understanding of this history that we we usually like to forget or not remember or not consider in the first place.
0: We have links in the show notes to Caleb Gale's new book, We Refuse to Forget, as well as some news stories about the 2018 legal case against the Creek Nation, as well as the story of how other Black freedmen won citizenship in other First Nations. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.